0: So last week we introduced the book of Jonah. Um, What we did was we went through basically kind of the textbook look at who wrote it, when was it written, why was it written, what are the big themes, um, that sort of thing. And we're going to be camping out in Jonah for the next five weeks or so. And so the whole idea being a chapter a week, and then we're going to spend one final week where we just look at all of the ways that Jonah points to Jesus, which should be fun, okay? And so we're going to jump right into this for the sake of time. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. You can follow along if you so desire in your Bible or your phone or whatever it might be. We will know if you're tweeting. Okay, now, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Okay. So begins the story of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, 1 to 3. So let me tell you a little bit about Jonah. Jonah's name in Hebrew means dove. It means dove, which sounds really nice, you know, sounds very pretty. But what you should know is that elsewhere in the Old Testament, for example, Hosea chapter 7, verse 11, dove is used as an insult. Um, because dove also, though it sounds nice and pretty, it represents something that is silly and senseless. And so in Hosea chapter 7, verse 11, it says that my nation has become like a dove, lacking sense and acting silly. And so already, right from the beginning, I told you guys that Jonah is a very literary book, and from the beginning we're told that Jonah might be living up to his namesake. His last name, son of Amitai, that would be like Amitai-son, if he was, you know, American... Um, his last name means son of my faithfulness, my faithfulness. And so this too pokes at Jonah, because if you know anything about the story of Jonah, you would not describe Jonah as a man of faithfulness. You'd describe him as a very resistant sort of missionary and prophet. Now, the Lord says to Jonah, he says, arise and go to Nineveh. So I want to tell you a little bit about Nineveh, which is the Kind of seat of power of an empire called Assyria. So Nineveh is in Assyria. Now the Assyrians were a powerful empire in ancient Mesopotamia and they were known specifically for their military might, they were known for their territorial expansion, they were known for their brutal tactics. All right, one of their tactics was that they would do mass deportation of people. And so in other words, they would come in and they would take over your country, and then they would take the men, women, and children, they would split them up, and they would send them to various corners of their newly acquired empire. Um, And this was a way of them preventing people from regathering to form a militia. All right, and so it was a deliberate policy in their paperwork, so to say. To break your spirit so that you would be unable to organize for resistance against them. Um, Without going into gory details, the Assyrians were known for using torture. They were known for using mutilation as a punishment for all sorts of disproportionate responses to rebellion or disobedience. They would engage, actually, in indiscriminate slaughter just randomly, just so that to keep you on your toes and so that the people they conquered would live in constant fear. Matter of fact, what they would do is they would make these artistic reliefs, you think of like an ancient drawing, and they would have these ancient drawings, they would like hire somebody, they'd hire David McCumber to make this ancient drawing it's a specialty, torture and mutilation drawings. And they would, they would have these scenes. And on the scenes, on their reliefs would be the Assyrians impaling their enemies, flaying prisoners alive, putting their cabezas on, head, on spikes, these sorts of things. And then they would put those drawings in the public square, like a mural. And it's like, we just want you to know what happens when you get out of line with the Assyrians in power. And so Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, okay? It's a major center of trade and culture, art, obviously, I just told you guys. And it had a population of probably an excess of 120,000 people. It was well fortified. It's protected by a wall that was wide enough for a chariot to pass through, right? So the length of a chariot plus horses and 100 feet high. Nobody built a wall As good as the Assyrians. Okay? So, anyway, Tarshish, Tarshish. Tarshish is where Jonah ran. Not to be confused with Tarsus, which is where Paul, the Apostle Paul, was from. Different place um, entirely. You know, the, the city of Tarshish is mentioned multiple times in the Old Testament. Primarily, it's in the Old Testament. And that's for good reason, because prophetically, God said, I'm going to destroy Tarshish (laughs) because they basically take responsibility for their own success. And he says, and I'm going to make it so that nobody remembers them ever again. And guess what? Scholars still have no idea where Tarshish was. Now, listen, you should know that the Hebrew literatures do this kind of stuff all the time. If you remember the story of Ruth and Boaz, if you've ever read that account, there is another man before Boaz who could have married Ruth, but he's afraid because she's a Moabite. And it says in the Hebrew um, that he's very worried about his name, marrying a Moabite. But guess what? You never see that man's name in the entire book of Ruth. Ruth because he was so worried about his name, his name was erased from history, okay? Hebrew literature does this kind of thing frequently. So the exact location of Tarshish is debated. We know it was a Phoenician port city, and most people think that it was either in southern Spain, like Malaga or Portugal, or northern Africa along the coast of Morocco. But the point is this, when you look at what's written about Tarshish in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, what you realize is that it's a city known for its wealth, it's a city known for its prosperity, it's a city where they mined precious metals such as silver and gold and ivory, and basically it's a really awesome beach town, okay? And so here, you have Jonah. Jonah, the silly dove, son of my faithfulness. God says to him, hey, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah's faced with a decision. Do I go to Nineveh, or do I go to MTV Spring Break? Nineveh, Spring Break. Well, which would you choose? if you had the choice. But the question is, does Jonah really have the choice? Because God clearly told him to go to Nineveh. Well, what does Jonah do? As we see, Jonah does quite the opposite. The Lord says to Jonah, arise, and it says Jonah arose and went the opposite direction with this little word play. And so instead of going to Nineveh, instead of going and obeying God, instead of going to the people who desperately need to hear God's message of warning because they have 40 days-ish before God squashes the city, whether it's because of self-preservation or whether it's because of hatred, whether it's because of disdain, Jonah says, no thank you. And he goes, literally, to the opposite direction. um, And basically, he goes to the opposite end of the known ancient world. There's actually a reference in Moby Dick saying that they they went as far away as they could go, just like Jonah went from Joppa. And so Jonah goes the opposite direction. Now, it's kind of funny because as we see in these verses, look what it says it says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so Jonah tries to run from the presence of the Lord. He tries to run from the presence of the Lord because he doesn't want to obey the voice of the Lord. And so Jonah runs from obeying the voice of the Lord, and then he tries to flee from the presence of the Lord. And what we see in these verses it is a literary technique called irony. Now, uh, we know that Alanis Morse used the word ironic wrong, and so what actually is irony? Irony is a literary technique where the full meaning of a character's words or actions are clear to you, the audience, but they're ignorant to the character. Did you follow what I said? In other words, you as the reader or the listener, you're like, this guy's an idiot, but he has no idea how stupid he actually is because he's just a silly, senseless dove. Right? And so it's not his fault. And so what is unknown to Jonah that we are privy to is exactly what Mallory pointed out as we were worshiping the Lord through song. What is Jonah ignorant to? Can you really flee from the presence of the Lord? I mean, here's a prophet of God whose whole job is to be a mouthpiece of God, and he's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. Certainly Jonah was familiar with Psalm 139 written by David who was before him And David says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Jonah tries that. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Jonah tries that. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall come over me and the light about me be night, Jonah tries that. Even the darkness is not dark to you, Jonah tries that. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. So the point is that Jonah fulfills all of the different things that you could have tried. Tried in Psalm 139, and he tries and fails because ultimately you can't run away from the presence of the Lord, though we try. And here we're faced with this spiritual reality. God says to Jonah, arise. Jonah arose. He doesn't arise and he doesn't, he doesn't get up to obey. He goes the other direction. And now we see this spiritual reality. If you look at these verses, look what it says here. It says, he went down to Joppa, and he paid the fare and went down into it. And then it's going to say again later, and he went down, and he went down, and he went down. So when someone passes away in our culture, look, I just did it, he passes away. When, you're, when someone passes away, you don't say, hey, I heard that person died. That's considered crude. It's considered blunt. It's considered, um, you know, not very sympathetic. We say things like pass away. Pass away is a euphemism, which is a literary way to make it sound calmer so that we can kind of cover up the tragedy that actually happened. Well, in Hebrew, to go down is a euphemism for death the same way that we would say pass away. And so what the author is doing here is basically pointing at this reality. He says Jonah went, Jonah passed away, and he passed away, and he passed away. And what the author is basically saying is this, Jonah's trying to flee from the presence of God. He's trying to flee from obedience. He's trying to flee to Tarshish, which in the Bible symbolizes comfort, wealth, and distraction, But the further Jonah tries to go from obedience and the presence of God, the closer he gets to what? Say it. Ah, say it loud. Death. So this is the spiritual reality that we have. When we run from obeying the clear word of God, when we run from the presence of God, essentially we're asking for death because the definition of eternal separation from God, of hell, is to be away from the presence of God. And so as we disobey God willingly, and as we flee from his presence, essentially we're saying, I would rather die than follow you and be with you. The further Jonah goes, the more he goes down. And we should be reminded of Proverbs 14.12, which says this, There is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it leads to what? death. See, we need to remember, as people who are watching Jonah's story unfold, we need to remember that when the Lord gives an instruction, when the Lord gives a command, it is good. Good doesn't mean that it won't be costly. Good doesn't mean that it won't be painful. I'm pretty sure the cross was both costly and painful, but it was good. It was the greatest of good, and it was also The worst thing that could have happened, right? So when God says to do something, it is our responsibility not to question it, but it is our responsibility to obey it, even if it costs, even if it's inconvenient, even if it seems ludicrous, like going to Nineveh, even if it seems terrible. Because if God has commanded it, it is good for God's glory, it is good for God's plan, And if it's good for God's plans and for God's glory, ultimately it's good for you in the big picture of eternity, even if it looks painful in the immediate. But what we need to remember is this, to run from obedience, to really to try to flee from the presence of the Lord, which is the opposite of abiding, where we're called to draw near and remain close to Him. And it's to pursue the things of death instead of to pursue the things of life. So keep that lodge in the back of your mind when you know there's a clear thing that God has very clearly told you to do, but you really don't feel like doing it, and you say, it's not a big deal. It's just a little bit. It's just a little thing. It's just a minor infraction. Realize that God is trying to beckon you to life, and you're willingly pursuing the path of death, just like Jonah now all of us can relate to Jonah at this point in the story because if Tarshish is a symbol of the world's distractions and pleasures and wealth and the alternative is death in Nineveh I'm pretty sure the vast majority of people will choose my ties on the beach instead of being flayed alive okay and so we can't be too harsh on Jonah Because the reality is this is our lives as well. You see, there always has been and there always will be a severe temptation, an overwhelming desire to ignore the call and responsibility of God and to choose the easy path. When we look in the book of Luke and the book of Matthew, and it talks about the end, for example, Gina was just reading this today, that Jesus is talking about what it's going to be like at the end, and he says, in the end, it's going to be like the days of Noah. And then he lists certain things that people were going to be doing, and what are they? Oh, they're terrible things. They're going to be beating their wives, and they're going to be kicking cats. And No, he says they're going to be getting married. They're going to be raising families. They're going to be distracted with simple pleasures of life. They're going to be distracted with expanding their business because it's successful. They're going to be distracted by that new addition on the house. They're going to be distracted by all of these good things that are good gifts from God. But ultimately, those distractions will be like the third soil that Jesus says in the parable of the sower, choke out your fruit because you gave yourself to the worries, cares, and distractions of life in what John says in 1 John chapter 2, is the wrong course of action in what is the last hour. You guys following me so far? Well, I don't know where I am, so hold on a second. All of us can relate to Jonah, my ties. Okay. Yeah, always been in a temptation Some of you probably remember the famous hymn, Please Don't Send Me to Africa. Okay, so perhaps Jonah thought he's given him 40 days. All I need to do is go to Tarshish for 40 days, and then God's going to drop the hammer, and this is going to be done. And so essentially Jonah tries to push this off. Now, that's the opposite of what our mentality should be. Our mentality should be, Life is but a mist and a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It's like the flower of the field that in a moment of severe sun is burned up. And since life is really fast and I can't believe I'm already fill-in-the-blank years old, should I not be willing to obey and suffer temporarily, long-term knowing that I will be receiving things that cannot be taken away? See, that's the perspective that we are called to have, the opposite perspective of Jonah, the perspective that the temporary is fleeting, and so live for the long term, live for the big picture. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled, there's four hurlings in this chapter, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners, the baseball team, the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to try to lighten it. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. He keeps trying to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And he had laid down, and he was fast asleep. So the captain came and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise call out to your God. Perhaps the God or your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So Jonah tries to flee on a boat. God hurls a huge storm on the water with a whirlpool, in other words. And so this is like a scene out of Pirates of the Caribbean. There's a big whirlpool churning in the middle of the ocean. And what do they do? They throw the cargo overboard and they start trying to row out of this because this thing is sucking them in. Okay, I want you to picture that in your mind. The pull is so strong that the ship is threatening to break up. And the sailors, although they're extremely skilled, are terrified, and they cry out to their gods, and they hurl the cargo, and their hurling prayer is up. What's the lesson here? Well, one of the lessons could be that our meager efforts to push back against the judgment of God do not accomplish much, okay? and Which is exactly what the sailors are trying to do. But meanwhile, while everyone is panicking. Jonah is asleep. Because he went down, and he laid down, and he was fast asleep. And you might say, well, how asleep is he? And I would respond to you, it's almost like he was dead. That's how asleep he was. He's sleeping through this whole thing because he keeps going down and down and down. And so they wake him up, and ironically, they repeat the command of the Lord, arise and call but last time it was arise and call out against Nineveh, and now it is arise and call out to your God in prayer, Jonah. Verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, which is like an ancient magic eight ball, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah, and they said, tell us, Whose account, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what are of your people, Cotton Eye Joe? And he said, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Do you, Jonah? Do you really? I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So we have more irony incoming, like a tractor trailer. They said to Jonah, where do you come from? And he says, I am a Hebrew. Now, normally you wouldn't say, I am a Hebrew. But the way that he says it is specifically used when you're in an international context. And so in other words, it's like Jonah saying, well, I'll tell you what I'm not. I'm not a pagan like you guys. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. All right, that's basically what the author is trying to imply. I fear the Lord who made the sea, by the way. See, Jonah doesn't seem too afraid of God. He also seems rather ignorant and senseless like a dove versus the sailors who are exceedingly afraid. And they wonder what kind of senseless person would try to flee the God of the ocean on the ocean but such as Jonah. He's like a dove. Verse 11, And they said to him, Oh, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to try to get back to land. They were hesitant to kill this man, in other words. But they could not. For the sea grew, the sea grew. So picture that whirlwind, right? The sea grew more and more tempestuous, okay? It grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they call out to the Lord, because Jonah would not, O Yahweh, when it has Lord in capital letters, that means Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. And so they pick up Jonah, and they hurl him into the sea, and the sea ceases from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offer a sacrifice, vows, prayers. Well, the sailors don't know what to do. They are fearing this God of Jonah's. They want the sea to calm down, but they don't want to do something rash, something foolish. They don't want his blood to be on their shoulders. They don't want to disobey Jonah's God. Look how mad he already is with this tempestuous tempest. So Jonah gives his best advice yet. Just hurl me into the sea. I'd rather die than obey the commands of God. I would rather die than be close to his presence. You ever feel like that? That's often how we feel, by the way, about our idols. I would rather die than give up, fill in the blank. I would rather die than quit drinking. I would rather die than quit my job. I'd rather die than apologize to that family member. This is often what we do when we have severe idols. We would rather choose death than to let something get in the way of the idol that we worship. So God hurls the wind, sailors hurl the cargo, Jonah says, hurl me, and the sailors don't like that idea, they try to row out, it doesn't work, but there's another option. They could sacrifice this one man to save the many, that's an option. They don't want the blood on their hands, though, because they fear this God, so they ask him for mercy, and they hurl him into the sea, and everything calms. And the sea, often, by the way, in the scriptures, is a metaphor in the scripture for wrath and judgment, and it is stilled. The judgment of God is stilled as the one man is sacrificed for the many. Hopefully, you see that, what I'm pointing at, but we'll get to it in a few weeks. Good job, Jonah. You managed to save a whole boat of pagans, and you didn't even try, because now they're worshiping the Lord. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It's actually an aquatic beast, is how it would be translated in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, a kraken a leviathan, a giant goldfish. We don't know. I'm betting on a kraken because that would be really cool. (laughs) But it swallows Jonah whole, and it's about to take him on a three-day, two-night cruise. All right, so let's pull this together. I want you to think about Jonah. Now, if you knew that Nineveh had 40 days, 40 days, and God had clearly commanded you to go east to them, would you go or would you flee? If you knew, now you're not Jonah, now this is you, if you knew that you had five years left, and then you'd be dead. If you knew you had three years, if you knew you had one year left, and that God had given you clear commands to do over the course of that one year, three years, five years, Would you do them and go to Nineveh? Or would you go to Tarshish so that you could eat, drink, and be married because you're going to die in here? Would you punch the clock on your responsibilities? Or would you allow yourself to sink into the urgency of the moment and to feel the weight of obedience? which all the money in the world can't remove from your shoulders, although you think if I just buy this extra, maybe then I can push it away. Would you allow yourself to feel it? Or would you flee to distraction, to comfort, to pleasure, to endeavors? I don't think I need to belabor this point much more. But the point is this. We are Jonah. We are all Jonah, 100%. 1 John chapter 2 says this is the last hour. And if he said that 2,000 years ago, how much more does he mean it today? And we could say, oh, they've always been saying that. And 2 Peter 3 would say, you're right, scoffer. They've always been saying just one more generation, just one more generation. But the Lord is being patient. He's waiting for you to obey and for them to respond, We have the clear commands of God to go out into all the world and make disciples, to share the gospel with the three plus billion people who have no access to it. We have the commands to love our neighbors, to forgive those who hurt us, to pray for those who persecute us. We have all of the clear commands of God absolutely spelled out before us in written form and then brought to our heart consistently and constantly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know the risks. We know that we don't want to make the sacrifice, that we don't want to write that check, that we don't want to give up our vacation days to go there. We know all of those things. We know the time is brief, And at the end of the day, you do something or don't do something, not because of this psychological reason or that psychological reason. At the end of the day, you do something or don't do something because you either want to do it or you don't want to do it. We simply don't want to go to Nineveh. We'd rather go to Tarshish. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that there are general commands. Go make disciples. There are specific commands. Bill and Gina, plant a church. But here's my question for you. And so if you've been zoning out, you can wake up now. Here's my question for you. I want you to write this down, pretend like you're writing it down, okay? Here's the question. What is the last thing that God clearly told you to do that you haven't done? And why haven't you done it? What is the last thing that God clearly told you to do and you've been basically dismissing it and sweeping it under the rug and pretending like that's not for you? You know, Hebrews 12 says to toss aside all of the sin that entangles us as we run the race, but doesn't just say sin. It says, and everything that encumbers us. That when you're a brand new believer, often what the Lord calls you to cast aside is sin. But as you grow in your faith, He calls you to cast aside encumbrances. And the encumbrances are far easier to justify than the sins. Because you go, it's not a sin. What's wrong with me doing this? It's not like it's a sin. There's nothing wrong with having this. There's nothing wrong with having that. There's nothing wrong with me doing this. There's nothing in the Bible that says that's wrong. And God says, I didn't say it was wrong. I just said to let it go because I want more of you. And that's standing in the way. Could be a hobby. Could be a focus of your life. But what is the last thing that God clearly told you to do that you haven't done? Because by refusing to obey, you're essentially playing tug of war with the sovereignty of God. You're trying to flee from something that you were not designed to escape. And you're banking on your own abilities to get something done rather than trusting God to do it in His power. So Jonah probably looked at Nineveh and he said, if I go there, I'm going to die. They're not going to repent. I fully expect, because I, don't, I believe the Scriptures, I fully expect that there are people in this room who have been told by God for years that they need to forgive that family member, that they need to get rid of that habitual sin, that they know they're going to find the joy of Jesus if they just eliminate X from their life, that they need to change jobs, that they need to change gears. They need to change the direction of their life. They need to cut that relationship off because it's not helping them grow. It's actually making their walk with Christ worse, that there's people who need to be pursuing ministry, but they're saying, I don't want to because my job is safe and secure. I fully believe there's people like that in this room because I'm like that. That when I look back out of my life, it was often a period of one or two years where God would begin saying, I want that. I want that. I want that. And then I would wrestle with God for years. One of the earliest things I can remember is when I was in my early 20s. And it might sound stupid to you, but I know it doesn't sound silly to the 33-year-olds that God said, don't play video games. And I said, it's not a sin. He said, I didn't say it was a sin. I just said, it's a waste of time. Don't play. And I was like, well, yeah, but that's for amateurs. I'm a professional. That was one of the first things I remember in my new relationship with Christ, that he said, let this go. And man, I fought on it for years. See, Jonah had 40 days before God dropped judgment on Nineveh. And Jesus says, we are in the last hour, the last hour. He said that 2,000 years ago in 1 John chapter 2, the last hour. Imagine what John would say if he were here right now, how much closer to the last hour we are. Do you really have time to say, I'll think about my walk with God in 30 years? I'll think about what's important after I retire. I'll think about it after this season. It's a really busy season. Do you really have time to ignore the commands of God? Is that what you want to be on your epitaph? tried to flee from the presence of the Lord because it seemed like a good idea at the time. What if you knew you had 40 days left? Would you say, it's time to eat, drink, and be merry because in 40 days, I'm dead? Or would you say, I want to be wrung out in these final moments for the glory of God? My, your homework, your homework, welcome to Revolve. Your homework for this week... Your homework for this week is to take a day to fast something, okay? Uh, Food, social media, your phone, your family. This is a joke. Take a day to fast something to find calm, quiet, disconnected time away with the Lord. And I want you to journal and pray and ask God about this thing. What's the last thing God clearly told me to do? that I'm refusing to do. And show, ask God to show you, how, can you re, how you can repent and walk forward in obedience in that way. Look, I'm going to tell you from personal experience, God is sovereign. Rich Mullins used to say, God is the kind of guy who beats you up and then gives you a ride home on his bike, okay? <laughs> God is sovereign and cooperating with the Spirit is far more joy-filled and rewarding than grieving the Spirit. Okay? And so, let me pray for you, and then we're going to participate in communion. Father God, I ask that you would help us to um, whatever that thing is, God. Lord, if you're not saying something to people I, I, I fully believe that uh, you need to open their ears, Lord, because you're saying something to all of us, whether that's sharing the gospel with a family member or a friend, whether it's eliminating a certain temptation from our lives, whether it's, who knows? God, you don't need my ideas. Your spirit knows exactly what each person in this room needs to hear. And so, Lord, I pray that if it's not clear, if it's not clarion clear right now, it would be clear this week, What is the thing you've called me to do that I'm refusing to do? That every time it comes into my spirit, I immediately try to push it away because I don't want to think about it. I don't want to entertain it. It causes me too much stress and anxiety and frustration, and so I just don't want to do it. I pray that you'd show us so that we can walk forward in obedience.